Hi, and welcome to another episode of Armchair Generals. Uh, this week, Ukraine counteroffensive, breakouts in the Northeast, continued grinds in the Southeast. Russian military recruitment has become an issue of uh, some interest. And Ben Hodges this week, Lieutenant General, uh, U.S. Army, former commander of U.S. Army Forces Europe, uh, came out with a, a very interesting article in the Telegram discussing the possible disillusion of the Russian Federation as a result of their failed war in Ukraine. Very interesting topic. Um, also, I believe we touched on this last week in Applebaum's piece uh, regarding uh, preparing for eventual Ukrainian victory and what the what the West will owe both Ukraine and Russia if that outcome comes to pass. So, Andrew, what are we looking at this week? I mean, just starting on the ground, it's it's amazing what the Ukrainians accomplished over the last call it 10, 12 days. 3,000 square miles recaptured, uh, more territory than the Russians have seized since the end of April. It's it's amazing how quickly it occurred and the kind of lack of will to fight on the Russian side. And I know we'll touch on this later in the episode, but the Ukrainians, they're motivated right now. Um, I think at this point, it's uh, going into winter, they're just trying to get as much territory and as many wins as they can lined up and just grind down the Russians to see and and, and force them to try and respond, keep them off their game. I uh, I think it was a masterful stroke uh, discussing and, and publicizing their Kursan offensive. From what I can tell in the open source literature, Obviously pulled away significant seasoned troops from the, the north and up in the Kharkiv Oblast, which really softened it up for this counteroffensive. And just really interesting to see what happens because this is this, I want to call it, you know, tactical victory has brought about ramifications across the spectrum, you know, really proved out in in, in a, an important way that Ukraine's you know fight was was viable and worthy of our support, and I think the timing was perfect for this in the sense that if you were going to get through this winter in Europe with no energy surprise from Russia, the Ukrainians needed to show the world why we've been supporting them. To a lesser extent, the U.S., but but particularly Europe, they needed to make a, a statement, and they did. And hopefully, they can continue to to grow off this. Now, you mentioned tactical victory. Would you go so far as to say a strategic coup, perhaps? You know, I I teeter on this because, uh, as Jen Stoltenberg said in the last couple of days, Secretary General of of NATO. Uh, this is not the beginning of the end. This is this is but this perhaps conference. the end of the beginning. The, the end of the beginning. <laughs> to quote De Churchill badly. Exactly. Definitely possible. Um, I will say these were not the Russian str 
the Kharkiv Oblast doesn't seem to have been a Russian strategic objective. They, you know, since they they lost their main objectives, their focus on the Donbass and really Donetsk and Luhansk may, you know, that's where they're kind of focused. But hopefully, I mean, I think it's more a pull in a way, a more of a political victory. I, I see the number of troops there they're captured, the Ukrainians are capturing or killing. And it's a lot, but it's not like whole army groups. They're just, the Russians are just fleeing. And this is not a well-ordered retreat. No, it's, and the equipment that's being left behind, you know, definitely useful for the, the Ukrainians, but um, this is going to be a long war. And when you think about the number of troops that are engaged in combat, it is a much smaller number up there compared to down in Kherson. I think the, the Russians have something north of like 20,000 troops in west of the Dnipro River. And that seems to be a much more active kind of axis of, of fighting. So if I think if they can take back Kherson, that would be more telling because it's a, it's a city, it's it was lost in the beginning of the, the fight and without much much battle. And it's something that the Russians strategically need to maintain their land bridge and also to a lesser extent to maintain water supplies into Crimea. Yeah, the, I tend to think that this was that the, uh, the southern axis of advance on the part of the Ukrainians to put pressure on uh, Kherson was always a feint to draw forces out of uh, northeastern Ukraine because this was going to be a easier, larger territory to capture. Uh, probably for the reason you said that it was not it was not the main effort of the Russian army. And so they fell into the Ukrainians' trap, uh, which was to believe that there was going to be a main, uh, a main uh, axis of advance toward Kherson, uh, and they reinforced that because it's critical to maintain a land bridge to Crimea, uh, in for Russians strategically, and so. This allowed the Ukrainian military to engage in a, a lightning advance through northeastern Ukraine uh, and relieved a bunch of pressure on, on Kharkiv, which I think is ultimately more important to uh, the, the Ukrainian government uh, because it is their second largest city. And it is it was spectacular. It was a spectacular uh, military effort that resulted in an embarrassing defeat for the Russian army, which is important for all of the reasons um, you, you kind of outlined, that it's hugely important politically to show Western partners and allies that the Ukrainian military that can't, is not just capable of defending against Russian advances, but is capable of going on the, on, on the offense and pushing Russian forces back and liberating territory. Uh, it removes pressure off of the Ukrainian second largest city, which would be like if Mexico invaded the United States and was constantly putting pressure on Los Angeles 
this uh, relieves all of that pressure. So internally, it's very it's a very good narrative for the Ukrainian public to know that that this huge swath of territory was liberated and Kharkiv is safe or as safe as it can be, and that the Ukrainian army is on the march, even if the more tactical um, or more strategic important Ersan it remains a, a uh, an area in which very heavy fighting continues to go on, very stiff resistance by more capable Russian forces. But that's not to say that 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 a large pocket can't be isolated and forced to surrender. Um, you know, all the forces that are west of the Dnieper are are in, I think, still real danger of that happening if if Ukrainians keep the pressure up and. Again, all of these advances need to be um, solidified before winter, which puts, again, this it will likely require a negotiated solution because what other choice is there? Uh, Russia will always be, you can't move the country. Russia will always be its neighbor. So unless a permanent peace is achieved, uh, through negotiation, this will be a, a frozen conflict, I believe. I, I tend to agree, agree as well. The What I could see is I could see this not having the characteristics of a standard frozen conflict, like let's use North Korea, where there's no, no end of the war, it's just an armistice. And I think what we may see, it could be years from now, let's say the Ukrainians do win in the sense they get all their territory back. That to me would be the best solution in the sense of like, are the Russians going to come back for seconds after that? Probably under a new government, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And if not, you know, if it's something less than that, if it's the Ukrainians push the Russians back to, you know, the 2014 border and they're just, you know, they make Crimea uninhabitable in the sense of they keep the water, they turn the water off, they they periodically shell it. Are the Russians just going to periodically continue to shell Ukraine? Because uh, if so, I think you'll see there would be different levels of pressure that could be put on on the Russians at that point. And so I don't know. I, it's a tough one because if I'm Putin in Putin's shoes, you, you can't not fight at this point. Like he's a dictator, can't lose, especially a Russian dictator in this fashion. But if it's a new government, do they just wash their hands of it? Um, it's, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, but I do know as this war continues, it's harder and harder for the Russians to get the material and the troops to fight. And I think it's interesting to see that the Ukrainians have huge numbers of forces, I would assume in training because they've nationalized or they've, they've, uh, brought up basically their entire country to a war footing. And the Russians are purposely not doing that. So we'll see. I mean, 
Putin had some interesting comments at the Shanghai Cooperation Council in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, which in and of itself. Uh, as yeah. did Narendra Modi. Did yes. You, did you so see did that? Modi. Yep. Modi had some interesting comments for for Vladimir. Yeah, that's and and even Xi Xi Jinping said you know like had concerns and Putin acknowledged it, which is which is interesting. Um, but in, in my mind, there's the 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 actual fight, and the Ukrainians, no matter if it's a tactical or strategic victory, brilliant planning. I heard they were war gaming this out with with Allied forces for a while, and. Great operational security. Great operational security. Executed it flawlessly so far. I mean, the the one thing I worry about is you just rolled yourself up to the Russian border. And I wonder how easy it's going to be to main, hold those lines if the Russians do a con, concerted push back. But, you know, we, we think like in the West – we're thinking Ukraine, great job. This causes even more political pressure on Putin. He's even more isolated. But the fact is, that's not 100% true. If you look, he, he was in Samarkand. He was meeting with the premier of China, president of India, and prime, president of India, and, you know, uh, some other the stand countries, and I think there were some other folks who were there who had observers, but not heads of state. He he's increased his his trade with India and China. And, you know, to a degree, they're the only outlets he has. But the idea that the world is in complete unity around Ukraine is not true in the sense. The sphere in which we generally involve ourselves is, but the world is a very large and vast place. I would push back on that a bit, if I might. Um, I understand that um, there has been a, uh, you know, there's been an increase in trade with some trading partners uh, as a result of, but it's as a result of the loss of trading partners that they had had, um, you know, they they can no longer trade with basically anyone in in Europe or North America. And when you're a commodity based economy, an extraction based economy, a gas uh, station that acts yeah, as a yeah, it becomes, uh, you know, having your access to markets limited, uh, particularly markets that you had sort of structured your economy around the the pipelines all point to Europe and Europe I don't see Europe being a viable market for Russian gas or um, Russian energy products certainly until the government changes uh, they were not going to buy gas from Putin regardless of what I think what happens this winter. Uh, if certainly, I think the die has been cast that R Russia is no longer a reliable partner for energy. That 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 is a bad one, and every government, every capital in Europe has to be considering uh, advancing and accelerating alternative energy supplies, both 
conventional fossil fuel based and renewables. This is going to accelerate trends that were already ongoing. And so it puts Russia in a weaker position economically, uh, regardless of whatever happens going forward. I just I think that that it's a bad bet. And this has had knock on effects uh, politically for the Russian government that they they can't they you know they can't they don't have an industrial base that's capable of supporting this war effort. It's one thing to be a global superpower with hegemonic power and to go off and engage in military adventurism uh, because it represents a fraction of your economic power as well as your military power. But it's another thing when your uh, your economy is the size of Italy's, like that that you can't engage in the same level of military adventurism. And I think there's a real sense, a real a blind spot in the in the Kremlin regarding the the actual amount of global power they wield. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that. They are not, they don't have the best uh, information. And it's a real emperor who has no clothes moment. Uh, it really affects the ability of the Russian government to generate forces to send to uh, Ukraine. You know, it used to be this idea of the great Russian army and the very masculine and very, um, and then, and then really high wages would attract f- people to sign on to be in the Russian army. That has stopped there. And as, as you, uh, as we mentioned, there's some really interesting uh, efforts at recruitment that are going on in Russia right now. Yeah. Uh, I agree with all that. And I would add, they are, they lack the the well rounding that most kind of uh, industrialized countries have they don't produce computer chips nearly basically at all so one of the main inputs for a lot of modern weaponry or whatnot they don't have they can't even in any short period of time build that capacity internally and you add to that. Um, Kind of, I don't want to say the command economy, but it's 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 kind of a uniquely command kleptocracy in a way, where uh, the basically the pillaging of the natural resources of the economy amongst a small group of people, that type of economy doesn't work well. It works even worse in these situations. Because they they lack the levers to diversify in any rapid rapid period of time. So I I completely agree with you on that. The thing I would would point out is, um, in addition, just on your your subject is, you know, how are the Russians going to handle this now? And – Politically, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has, I don't want to sh- shaken things up, but some things are starting to come loose or at least be seen more publicly. 
Uh, and I'll touch on just a couple. So Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, who is the, uh, the kind of the owner or founder of the, the Wagner Group, which we've all heard about, mercenary uh, private contractor, military contractors who now have presences around significant parts of, of Asia, uh, Middle East, and North Africa. He uh, was recently captured on video at a prison uh, in the yard, basically giving a speech to the prisoners saying, if you join us and you fight for six months, uh, all your crimes will be expunged. Uh, he used some colorful language, which was amusing and about what was what was and was not allowed in uh, the service of the Wagner Group. And uh, there were a few things you could get shot for. Uh, desertion, you'll be shot. Uh, pillaging, you'll be shot. And drugs and alcohol, you'll be shot. So um, very intriguing thought. And then when he was asked recently about this, because there he had kind of demurred over the last couple of weeks when there were uh, hints that prisoners were being offered these, these opportunities to get out of jail. And these are serious pr- criminals. I think they, they even were accepting murderers who had very long sentences. Uh, he, his comment recently was, uh, it's either prisoners or your children, you decide. So I think it's very telling that that is, I don't want to say the bottom of the barrel, but that is, that's where they're going to try and find troops. And this, this kind of ties into something that Putin said, like they're trying to push this narrative that this is still a special military obligation operation, and it's only being conducted by professional soldiers. And from what it seems like, it's professional soldiers, contractors, and those that society doesn't mind losing. And that is interesting. But Putin actually in Samarkand uh, did comment and did say like, right now we're not using our conscripts. And if if we have to, you know, we, we probably will, which in and of itself is very telling considering their, their standing quote unquote professional army that has been going through modernization for the last 15 years and cost tens of billions of dollars is incapable of taking a country that is from the outset military significantly weaker than they are. But it all comes down to motivation, right? And the idea that they're going to send a bunch of conscripts into this fight and they're going to have a materially different outcome, I think is 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 short-sighted. They could they may be able to swarm them and have almost like wave warfare where they just send bodies and eventually they'll get through. But I don't know if that's politically feasible. What do you what do you think? It's it's very, it's very precarious. While Putin has said that he is not using conscripts, the there's a reason that they aren't, and that's because the public support for this special military operation, as it is called is probably predicated on the use of the professional soldiery. And the fact that 
the Russian military has now resorted to allegedly, uh, because some of this stuff is unconfirmed, recruiting from prisons, from mental institutions. Although this is a very popular wartime trope because the Japanese said it about U.S. Marines during World War II, uh, that they were that they were selected from amongst these uh, these kind of places as as shock troops. So again, we say this uh, unconfirmed, but suggestive. They are definitely recruiting scratch units from among um, the non the ethnic minority groups uh, in the Far East, Chechens. So this these sort of recruiting efforts suggest real trouble at traditional force generation through the standard recruitment and retention efforts of the mainline Russian army, but a resistance to full mobilization. And we've seen increased criticism of the Putin regime from the far right in Russia, from the ultra-nationalists, uh, who are clearly embarrassed at the failure of the Russian army in the field and believe that it is now time to engage in a full-scale mobilization of the Russian public. And what the Putin government may think is that that's not um, in their best interest because middle-class support, elite support in, in the cities will evaporate as soon as they start pulling uh the children and professional classes into the army to go fight against their brother nation in Ukraine, who they've been told for for a decade more is not a real country, is decadent, can't fight, wouldn't fight. So as the Ukrainian military continues to make strong advances on the battlefield, uh, this propaganda looks rickety and then it's a real again emperor has no clothes moment ben hodges this week in the telegram laid out an interesting case for the the existential nature of this conflict to russia not just to vladimir putin but to the russian federation because the three pillars on which the um the what's the word the three pillars on which the legitimacy of the Russian state rests is the army, which is engaged in arguably total collapse, uh, economic prosperity, and um, nah, nah, I don't like I don't like where that's going. It the 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 idea of Russian nationhood is really tied closely to the Russian military and the ability of power projection from Moscow to the outlying territories. And that's collapsing. And so what happens if Chechen nationalists decide this is our moment? The Russian military is completely bogged down in this war of choice in Ukraine and have proven themselves to be a paper tiger. What happens what happens? Can they fight a second Chechen separatist movement while they're also fighting in Ukraine? It's doubtful. What about other semi-autonomous regions in the Russian Far East where 
they're not really even Russian. They don't identify as Russian. Do they, do, do those groups decide now is our moment? And do we see the Russian Federation as it exists today kind of spin apart? Does China decide that maybe some of the territory that Russian took from them in the 19th century ought to be back under the Chinese umbrella? So these are all questions that we don't know the answers to, but we should probably start thinking about them because they don't, it's not science fiction. Like this stuff happens. No, it's true. I, I think uh, just like Ann Applebaum, I, I think we need to make sure that we have gamed out, the powers that be have gamed out how this can go. You know, I, I think, you know, we Americans have, we ran into this situation where we, we thought, okay, we're going to go take over Iraq and Afghanistan and the military side of it uh, happened very quickly. It It's, it's how do you put together the pieces you broke afterwards? Cause you know, once you break it, you own it. Um, and if the Ukrainians cause a certain level of dysfunction within Russia, everybody that becomes a problem for everyone else i mean it's a nuclear weapon country with nuclear weapons stashed throughout their country if they go through any form of crisis uh that is going to be a significant concern for everybody um they're still for what you know they're still a major player on the energy market if there's ever a uh, an event that caused significant drops in in energy production fertilizer production this would be, they also produce a large percentage of the world's titanium. Like there would be, there would be seismic shifts if, if they went into some type of catastrophic internal civil war. And just to, to kind of echo what you were saying, I mean, one of those pillars that I think causes Putin to think twice before mobilization is the economy. He's under a lot of stress right now. The economy is under a lot of stress. They're having to pivot. And if he starts taking professionals out of important jobs and basically sticking them in the army and trying to solve military solutions, their economy is going to get crushed even more. And I think that's something that the average Russian um, feels. And that's part of their uh, kind of political agreement they have with Putin. Like, we won't be involved in politics to the same degree that we we should be or allowed under the constitution and you'll can continually make things better for us, our daily life. And I think if you went to full mobilization, that would directly contravene that. Um, one, one kind of interesting aside that kind of echoes your point here is some of the news I saw on, even on Russian state television, where they, in some of their uh, talk shows, they were having folks started talking about it being a war in heated debate. You know, they were using the war word, um, which is banned. And open criticism of Putin. Yeah, uh, true. It was what I saw, at least, was it was usually couched in that people were giving Putin the wrong information. information. Like, so other people were making it. So not directly stating Putin. But the 
the council of ministers in St. Petersburg, the city, the city of ministers denounced him and called for his resignation and trial is a traitor, right? Like, absolutely. Uh, in, in an open letter, I think it was 18 yeah, municipal governments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, there's definitely, it's a really sticky wicket he's gotten himself into. Absolutely. And what I found on, at least on the, the videos I saw, was a real range of the gamut. I mean, you had people who were in, previously in the Duma. People in the Duma. People in the Duma. They, uh, variety of thoughts. I mean, the ones that were most pragmatic that I saw were, we need to negotiate a settlement and politic, and we should end this. It just end it. Uh, but on the other side, you had folks who would were unwilling to bend from party line of, we must win this war at any cost uh, and and spouted that, you know, this is a Nazi regime. I thought the most nuanced response was uh, from a political scientist, and I forget his name, who was or a political commentator who was on, who said, are in essence, are, the Russian troops are there to fight for a paycheck and the ideal that, you know, maybe this will make Russia safer. Um the Ukrainians, on the other hand, have repeatedly been told by us, Russia, in this case, that they as a people do not exist and that we, the Russians, are going to exterminate their Ukrainian identity and bring them into our... So they have absolutely everything to fight for. Their, their, their existence as a people, as a society, as a country, as a, as a long, proud tradition... That's what they're fighting for. What are our soldiers fighting for? Well, if you send conscripts, they're fighting to not get killed. That's literally what they're fighting for. Or a paycheck. Or a paycheck. If, I mean, that's what the professional army is fighting for. And what this retreat showed is that um, they don't think the paycheck is worth it. I uh, I saw a really interesting comment. And I, I don't know if it's true, so it could be incorrect. But there was a a, I want to say maybe a regiment up in Kharkiv, in the Kharkiv Oblast of Russians. And the people in the area had gotten this sense that like some, some counteroffensive was coming in that region. And in mass, I think it was at the end of August or maybe the first day of September, they all uh, submitted requests to go on leave. Every single one of them in the regiment. Because they knew the Ukrainians were going to come and they didn't want any of that. And they were all denied uh, leave, but they all fled soon as the Ukrainians, you know, came into sight. And I think that's just very telling. And what I wonder is you, is the Russians have very strong control over their, their social media and their, their information flows but there are now enough soldiers that have fled from the Ukrainians or have been in combat with the Ukrainians. I mean, hundreds of thousands. That I wonder how much information is getting out internally. You know, when they call their mom, they're like, "What are you, what are you doing today?" Uh, well, you know, we're fleeing the Ukrainians in this school, stolen school bus. Uh, you know. And then when you're asked, where's your commanding arm? Well, he fled yesterday. So my commanding fled yesterday. We're just following suit. Yeah. 
you know, it's it's interesting to think about what a, a what the people who live in a society will put up with uh, when that when that society's government uh, sends it off to war, and in a democracy like the United States, there are a couple of ways that 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 pressure is relieved. One is by elections where people can register their dissatisfaction with military adventurism at the ballot box. Second is having a professional army that takes that bears the burden of of that those policy choices on behalf of the nation, but doesn't otherwise disrupt the day-to-day life of the citizens of the nation. And you can argue about whether or not that's moral or ethical, but that is the, that was the situation in the United States since 2001, where we had a professional army that was world-class, that was paid to fight, that went and fought, and most of the citizenry was not asked to do anything about it. And while those wars were ultimately unsuccessful in their stated military objectives, they did not bankrupt the nation. They were not battlefield losses in the way we're seeing them. They were political losses. Um, And so in a state like Russia, you can't change the government. The government owns, owns the conflict and you can't register your dissatisfaction, which means the government can't change policy because the leader can't be wrong because then it calls into question the very foundation of that society's, the the government's leadership. So that can't happen. And when, conversely, they don't believe in anything, right? Say what you will about the Soviet Union, but it had an ideology. So the soldiery, like in the United States, the professional army has a philosophical underpinning which makes the sacrifice more than just I'm here for a paycheck. There's a whole system of beliefs that underpins the idea of service to the nation, uh, defense of democracy and human rights and all of the things that go along with that, that that mean more than just dollars in your bank account that Russia doesn't have and arguably makes China um, more equipped to engage in this sort of adventurism because there is an ideological underpinning to that society, uh, communism, um, arguably not as good as human liberty and freedom as a motivation for troops, but it is a motivation. One the Soviet Union had, as when it was communist, it had a worldview, but the Putin regime is nihilistic. It, it believes in nothing. And so the idea that soldiers would fight and die for some vague notion of what Russia as an imperial power means. It's not even imperial in the sense that it has a sovereign that you're sacrificing your life in service to your sovereign. It has no, that not even that. It's literally just a paycheck, which I think is why you're seeing these some of these wholesale collapses in the professional army, because it's just not worth it. Um, and makes it, again, hard to generate forces because no member of the public wants to be conscripted to fight in this 
this failing war. I think it's important to remember that before the war started, Russia had a problem with people skipping out on conscription. That has, I'm sure, only been exacerbated. And we talk about, yeah, you could throw you could throw a bunch of conscripts into the fight. What I wonder about is other than just rolling over the Ukrainians with just huge manpower disparity, what's a recruit who's had eight, 12 weeks of training going to do? Are, are, are they going to be useful on a battlefield? Honestly, like in, in this modern warfare where fire and maneuver, moderately technically advanced weaponry are utilized and you have to do combined arms. You know, you need to coordinate amongst different groups. And I I wonder, I mean, there's no cross training, right? Like they're not. Well, the Russian military proved that it was incapable of combined arms warfare already. And that was the professional army couldn't do that. The professional army and air force. So it's it boggles the mind that a conscript army would be more proficient at any kind of combined arms warfare. And the Ukrainians have had the advantage of, you know, uh, almost 10 years of NATO style Western training in combined arms warfare that they've put to good use. Absolutely. And I, I was going to point out that I think the longer this goes, and I think this winter, I would not be surprised if there was large training cadres uh, in parts of, you know, they wouldn't be surprised if you see that in Ukraine potentially. And if not, <clears throat> large, uh, large groupings of, you know, kind of new recruits getting trained in places like Poland, Germany. The, I know they're in the United Kingdom. Wouldn't be surprised if we hear about 10,000 Ukrainians ending up in some U.S. state on, you know, maybe going through some more advanced training, whatnot, during kind of the off season, the the fighting off season. Um, you know, whatever is said and done at the end of this, the Ukrainians are going to have an extraordinarily, an extraordinarily more robust sense of of nationhood. Yeah, and. To go with that that exuberance, they're going to have a turnkey army. It's yeah. literally going to have gone from Soviet and second rate Soviet equipment to near top of the line NATO standard in just a handful of years. I, I I can't in my lifetime I can't think of another country that will have gone through this as quickly. They've proven themselves highly capable. And this is, again, going back to our, our first topic of the stakes involved in this offensive. It was proof that Ukraine could fight offensively, could make good use of the supplies that had been given, uh, could engage in complex combined arms operations with good OPSEC and win. And they've shown that they're very capable. I think it is probably great optics for politicians in every capital in Europe to point to and say, our investment is worth it. Our investment is working. 
And the pain that we will endure this winter when Russia cuts off the gas supplies is an important and necessary sacrifice to support our friends and allies in Ukraine. So I think it was not only a uh, tactical victory on the battlefield, but a strategic victory and a political victory that will have ramifications into the future. Um, moving on to uh, one final topic, if you want. Uh, the state of nuclear arms in this conflict. Uh, this is, it, you know, this has been something that we've talked about and that we've heard talked about since the beginning, but it's, it is a, a perennial question. What does Russia is a nuclear armed state? This is seemingly more and more a existential conflict for certainly Vladimir Putin, if not the larger Russian state as Ben Rhodes suggested, um, does this change nuclear force posture uh, for the Russians? Do they deploy nuclear weapons? I've heard, and I, I will I will share this one thought that I heard that I thought was pretty compelling, and then I'll let you respond, that the, that the Russian public may not stand for the deployment, the, for deploying tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine because of the propaganda campaign that was waged in the Russian Federation over the last eight years or so about Ukraine being a brother nation, a fellow Slavic nation, and have, being basically also Russian and not being capable of defeating Russia and Russian culture and how important Ukraine is to the idea of a greater Russian uh, nation or culture. And so that um, deploying tacular, deploying nuclear weapons would be uh, antithema to to all of that groundwork that has been laid in in Russian society over the past decade or so. I think that's a really a really good point. I would add to that that I don't think it even has to do with them being brothers, you know, brother Slavs, brother Rus. You have to feel existential or or think the costs are so high you're unwilling to pay them to deploy and utilize nuclear weapons like that is how bad they are for everybody i mean that wherever you drop that that area is a no-go zone for 30 40 50 years potentially depending on how they're used in the type of weapon do you want that? Like, do the Russians really want that f over Ukraine, right? Like, it's not like the Ukrainians are invading Russia, right? Um, as much as the Russian media may want to view that as such, uh, do the Russians want to preemptively, in essence, preemptively attack? The the counter, I'm not, not a counter, but another argument against the use of new weapons that I've, I found compelling is how the west well i'm just going to say western europe and the u.s they we like to draw artificial lines at first it was we can't give you artillery because that's that could be used in a way that will upset the russians then it was okay no advanced air defense systems oh no 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 rocket system blah blah and we keep moving that target if we were to believe kind of our political governments doing any of these things would have 
you know, nine months ago caused Russia to increase their nuclear weapons posture. But the fact is what was more compelling, like they didn't do anything with that. We have two countries that join are joining NATO that they have threatened to use nuclear weapons on if they did that and they haven't done it. I think the chance for the Russians to use nuclear weapons has passed. They, if now they're just going to get like Xi could not interact with Putin if he nuked a former Soviet state like that just would not work like nobody. He would be a pariah to a degree that I don't think he personally wants. Where I do think nuclear weapons could occur is some type of false flag event. I don't know how it would work because you would have to somehow claim the Ukrainians or a U.S. weapon in Europe somehow gets utilized. But I, that's the only way I can really see. I think what's more likely in a nuclear world is they they do something to a reactor like in Zaporizhia and they create um, basically like mass panic hysteria and force, force the Ukrainians to deal with a massive event while also trying to fight the war for cover to, you know, build up their forces and attack again. I tend to, I mean, I tend to agree with you that the use of nuclear weapons is probably a, a red line that, Russia doesn't want to cross, and what does it one one must assume that there there are rational actors, and that you have to ask what does the use of nuclear weapons gain you, and because you're right, it's not a direct threat to the sovereign integrity of the Russian state, because as as we know, the Ukrainians are not going to march on moscow so as much as they might want to as much as they may want to they they probably won't do that because uh you know that's beyond their capabilities uh so what does the deployment of that the the use of a nuclear weapon while maybe tactically sound it would win them a battle uh it would save you know it would destroy Ukrainian capabilities, what have you, it is a the cost on Russia to deploy those weapons is probably too great because it does not represent the sort of physical threat to Russia that would justify its use. That being said, you can never be certain that these that, that there aren't you know, rogue actors, some crazy ultranationalist colonel somewhere decides, um, you know, pulls a Doctor Strangelove and is going to ride ride the missile all the way to Kiev. Um, you know, these things are possible, however unlikely that we we hope they might be. Um, we we will. Would uh, you have a, a, a parting thought? I, I do. One more thing. Where do we foresee this going over the next few weeks? And I'm going to put out a couple predictions. Let's I, hear. I think in uh, the meeting at the end of September, I think of the 50 countries that are supporting aid, providing aid to the Ukrainians. I would not be surprised if in the near future we see heavy, heavy weapons start getting provided to the Ukrainians. And by that, I mean 
large numbers of armored vehicles and main battle tanks. I think if the Ukrainians are going to forcibly take over, especially places in Donetsk and Luhansk, they're going to need armored vehicles because it's just, it's like flat. It's just flat. They're on open roads. They need to be able to move quickly. I think we're moving in that direction. Uh, and part of this stems from my that thought I was just discussing of, you have to draw a line in the sand because you think it'll be too too much of a problem. You gave them HIMARS and you basically told them where they could kill a bunch of ranking officers. And then you gave them the intelligence to shoot down and sink their, their, uh, the, their kind of like the fleet, the main fleet, the Moskva, um, the flagship of their fleet. If that didn't get a response, then giving someone some more battle tanks or battle tank or large quantities of armored vehicles or even aircraft isn't going to do it. So that first and foremost, I think that's what's going to happen. Secondly, I think, I think they may not continue to advance out of the Kharkiv Oblast. I don't know if they have the Ukrainians have the troops and they have a natural kind of boundary there with the river that they're kind of lined up on. And they've, this was a very strong spoiling attack, right? It It's forcing Russia to reroute their logistic trains. So at least for the time being, the, the Russians are going to need to find alternative ways to support their troops in Donetsk and Luhansk. And I think you'll see a spike in partisan warfare uh, riding off this euphoria and probably disillusionment. And then in the South, I expect just more grinding warfare. I mean, I think... Unfortunately, a lot of Kursan and the surrounding area there will get pummeled and there'll be a lot of destruction. Yeah. The the question, and this is where I think the Ukrainians have an opportunity, is if they can figure out another, maybe a, a flanking maneuver, if they can cut off a pocket of Russians and get them to surrender that would be a political coup. Yeah, and I think you see the table setting for that in Kherson. Uh, if the Ukrainians can make a dash to the river, to the to the Dnieper and trap the that the Russian troops that are on the western side of the river against the river, I think you're going to see mass uh, surrenders of, of those forces. Uh, my prediction is that we are going to see another couple of weeks, maybe six, I doubt more than eight, of heavy fighting throughout eastern Ukraine. Um, we've reached the culmination point of the Russian uh, offensive ability. And so now it's the uh, initiative is on the, on the Ukrainian side. And wherever they end up will be probably the long-term contours of this war going forward. I believe that by the time winter sets in, um, Russian troops will probably have an opportunity to dig in, uh, and really build up defenses, really consolidate gains or, or uh, consolidate their lines, and that Ukraine likewise will be able to consolidate its gains and continue force generation. Uh, but that 
when the fighting season renews in the spring, it's going to be a long, hard slog. Um, I would also add that we may see units in the Russian military begin to crack and wholesale collapse. I think this is still possible. particularly the force has extraordinarily low morale, is poorly trained, is poorly equipped, and now we'll have to spend the winter in the field probably and won't be rotated off the line because there's no forces to replace them. How long can that go on in a force that is, has demonstrated such poor morale and leadership up to this point before units begin to just fragment? I, I don't know that it's... it's um, I think we may be... It's possible we may be seeing that as well. I I wonder if we'll see a surprise event over the winter. I, I just given how the Kharkiv movement really came out of the blue to me, and I think to most, obviously the Russians. We hear a lot about oh, you can't fight in the winter. You can't fight in the winter. I'm wondering. If they're thinking, yeah, we could figure out where this is our territory, we'll figure out a way. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Russians, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the cities they were occupying on the front line, they don't have electricity. There's no running water. Uh, are they going to, is their force posture going to be in a, in, in a position to really, um, as you said, like there will be no rotations. Like they're not, they're not getting out. And at a certain point, the Ukrainians may just outnumber them, like they did in Karv Kiev. I heard eight to one in that offensive. So, if the Ukrainians can move nimbly, they can put a lot of pressure on single points in the line and maybe get into the Russian rear. It wouldn't take much, um, I think, to force the the Russians back again. Like if you get across the Kherson, or you get across the Dnieper and you take Kherson. You can get down almost to the to to Crimea, and what the Russians would have to to kind of fall back and, in essence, be back where they were to start this war. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to keep our eyes out. As always, a delightful conversation. We will uh, we'll be back next week with more here on Armchair Generals. (laughs) 